0: Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present the Formed Book Club: Catholic Book Lovers Unpacking Good Books, Chapter by Chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at FormedBookClub.Ignatius.com. Welcome back, or welcome to the Formed Book Club. We're discussing faith. And Reason, subtitled Philosophers Explain Their Turn to Catholicism. I'm Father Festival, we have even Duter here, and Joseph Pierce. We are continuing with chapter six The Pastor's Kid Finds the Catholic Church by Logan Paul Gage. I open up the floor to any comments. This is like karaoke.
1: <laughs> well, I, I like the fact, of course, I, you know, I've obviously been cherry picking. Uh, intertextual references where these philosophers have have talked about that, that, that Pete, the, the writers influenced them, and obviously I'm delighted that he begins with that um, epigraph uh, um, by John Henry Newman. So John Henry Newman from the from his uh, hymn "Lead, Kindly Light," so that 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 warmed my heart.
0: And on his second page, one fifty-two, early life. He starts out, when I first read Augustine's Confessions, dot, 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 dot. Again, that's a wonderful book for anyone to read, right? Mm hmm And and on the following
1: page, he talks about Augustine's story is more one of a gradual awakening to truth than a one-time conversion. Uh, And he has to see the intellectual and moral errors that are clouding his vision. They must be uprooted and supplanted one by one before he can find rest in God. So there's two things there. First of all, I love, I've loved this quote. I'm sure I've quoted it before uh, from the Wreck of the Deutschland where, where Jeremy Hopkins talks about there being two types of conversion, the once at a crash, Paul, and the, and the slow melting, Augustine. Um, but I also like here the fact that, you know, that we, part of the intellectual process, if it's not going to be once at a crash, like St. Paul, is, is unlearning stuff. Right, so particularly you know, prejudices that we have, um, predilections that we have, that we have, things. Perhaps we've learned in my case from my father's knee, and you have to sort of unravel, you know, and, and unlearn a lot of the stuff you took for granted as a child and a youth in order to make spiritual progress and, and ra- rational progress.
0: Yeah, and there's a book I read recently by a man named Kahneman, K-A-H-N, M-A-N-N, I think called uh, Fast Thinking, Slow Thinking. I think it's a pretty well-known book. Uh, but there's one principle that he's expressed at the beginning, and he, he has an acronym for it, but it's what you see is all there is. Uh, that is to say, what you're reading, what you're seeing, your experience, that's all you really know. Uh, and so you make your decisions based on those, in life, which this unlearning, Joseph, a lot of these authors we have that were brought up in an evangelical or Christian home, they they didn't know anything about the Catholic Church. So what they did know was a caricature, you know. Uh, and so they had to expand their vision. And I, There's a lot of common themes in these conversions from these people who are th- seeking the truth. And one of them is uh, reading about the early church. Mm -hmm. You you see see them go back to the, because they expect to find the, you know, the the myth is that we had this pure Christianity early on and the Catholic church was the barnacles, you know, that uh, attached to the ship and Luther and others, they scraped them clean. And now we're back to the purified early church. And then these people go back expecting to find that, they, oh, my gosh, this looks like the Catholic Church to me.
2: And sometimes what provokes them to go back and find that is the puzzlement over if we really are what the early church was all about. Why don't we ever read the fathers or quote from them or know anything about them? That's what this author says on 158. If Protestantism was about getting back to the early church, this is the last line of the second paragraph. Why yeah. did we spend so little time studying the early church? Yeah,
0: I I underlined that also. Uh, and this is, you know, it's a wonderful to see these stories, but it's so encouraging as a Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic. Well, neither you are, the two of you, but uh, just to see how people who are curious or interested in, in going deeper or trying to find the truth. Uh, they all seem to find these ways, and uh, while they're unique, uh, there are certain common elements. And this going back to the early fathers and going back to the early church is one of them that mm-hmm. keeps coming up.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, another one, yeah, a, few, a couple of pages before we, where we just were, page 156, uh, C.S. Lewis, that recurring name coming up once again. He says, I've read almost everything C.S. Lewis ever wrote. And actually at the top of the page he even quotes Lines from uh, C.S. Lewis's poetry, and that, that's unusual because uh, the poetry is about basically the only thing C.S. Lewis wrote before he became a Christian. So this is actually pre-Christian C.S. Lewis that's being quoted here. But um, you know, that again, we have that. We also have Plato's dialogues referenced there. So um,
0: yeah, but are you saying you didn't write any poetry after he was converted?
1: Um, I don't believe that he did write any poetry after he converted he had this great desire to be a poet when he was young when he was an atheist uh and was very disappointed that he you know his two volumes of poetry were not very well received in fact were basically ignored
0: Um, i'm thinking of two poems one is to lazarus from stephen uh where stephen is you know or vice versa where Stephen is saying, uh, "Well, you know, you you came back, but you came back to what you had before, you know. Whereas, I, Stephen, when when I was martyred, when I died, I I came into the harbor. to me you believe that was not after I his conversion. Agree.
1: I agree. I, I don't know that poem. I, I I I don't know that poem at all. But that sounds very Christian. But I wasn't aware that he wrote any poetry after his conversion. But I could be wrong. Well, and then in
0: in the book Miracles, he begins with a poem. Uh, which is a very, very Christian poem. So those might have been kind of occasional poems that came later. Right, right. Uh, right. All right. I always don't like to contradict you on something that has to do with literature, Joseph, but uh, yep. since you can challenge me on theology, I figure that we're, we're even on that.
1: There are uh, no limits, Father.
0: And then on the next page, uh, the bottom there, he talks about. Uh, At first, I lived with my colleague, Mark, and his family in Northern Virginia. Mark and his wife, Katie, have nine children. I'd never seen or even heard of such a thing. I thought it was peculiar but wonderful. These people were definitely Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) But again, we see this interspersed in all these philosophers, well, except for the next one, maybe, uh, that uh, there's a combination of, of... Intellectual inquisitiveness, wide reading, and friendships and, you know, exchanges with others, human exchanges, personal exchanges.
1: That's the transcendental thing, right? The good, the true, and the beautiful. So, you know, this friendship, the good, love, and then the truth, reason, and then we also see the experience of beauty in in several of the essays, right? Yeah.
0: Then page 159, five lines down. At a party, I got distracted by a bookcase. <laughs> I can see that's a, that's a philosopher's temptation. Uh-huh. Uh, as you can tell, I'm real fun at parties. <laughs> and chanced upon David Curry's "Born Fundamentalist, Born Again Catholic," which I will notice in the footnote is an Ignatius Press book we did years ago. Uh, so his two issues. Uh, well, at the bottom of page 159, he says, uh, but the more we consider it, the more it just it couldn't be God's plan to give us a book and leave to own interpretation. And I, I've said, you know, as long as I can remember saying things like this or about this, that whatever Protestant objections or criticisms of the Catholic Church are, whether it's Mary or the saints or the Eucharist or tradition or whatever, they all come down to one fundamental one, and that is, where do we get the authority of Scripture? Because if you're going to base your proofs, your evidence, you know, your thinking, your conclusions on Scripture, the question is, well, where did that come from? And so many of these authors recognized there was no canon of the Scripture. There wasn't a New Testament, you know, until the year 400 or so. 387 And then they realize, wait a second, if if I'm going to rely on my conclusions on scripture, what is the basis for my belief in the authority of Scripture? There are all these books around the time of the New Testament, the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas and so on. But who decided which ones would be included in the New Testament? Well, it was the bishops. If they didn't have authority, then I can't count on the Bibles. Anyway, to me, that's always been the fundamental argument. And whenever I've gotten in the past, when I used to do more of this, in discussions with, you know, you know, good, serious Protestants, I've always said, look, let's forget all these other particular cases of purgatory, whatever it might be. Let's look at the Bible, you know. And that's what he did. So if, he, on page 160, he begins to discuss that one of the two issues, Protestantism and kind of scripture, and the second issue was Eucharist. And again, it's always been to me a kind of a paradox that the loudest proponents of sola scriptura, scripture alone, look at John's gospel, chapter 6, where it can't be more plain what Jesus is saying. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. I mean, anyway, it always seems to be a big contradiction. Yeah, and,
1: and, Pete, and people leave him in droves when he says it. He doesn't retract it or soften it. He basically just says, are you going to leave me too? You know, you <laughs> can all leave me if you like. This is a non-negotiable, right? Yeah. The other right, thing I so like first, is – uh, sorry, sorry. Go for minute, ahead, please. Joseph. Well, I'll just saying. also on page 160, I, I, I like the fact he's talking about the, the, the end of that section there before the new subhead. It makes little sense to claim that the bible alone is the final doctrinal authority without the right bible how can you know what it teaches unless you know what it is so that's basically reiterating what you just said father but now he talks about the fact the what the protestants call the apocrypha and the catholics call the deuterocanonicals which are probably pronounced incorrectly so again you know if we don't even agree upon what the canonical bible is <laughs> Um, you know, how can we be discussing uh, what, the, what the Bible is? We have to know what the thing is itself first before we can start uh, claiming its authority,
0: right? Well, w- when I was a young priest, which is a long time ago, and I was a young teacher teaching in college, uh, I got to know Deal Hudson, who at that time was the evangelical, and he was visiting San Francisco, and we spent some time together. And I, I teach this course uh on revelation of where there's a, there's a particular class. I talk about the formation of the Canon and he was there. I said, "Well, deal. Would you come into this? I'd like to have, because you know, I'm proposing what I think is true to Catholic students, but I don't have anybody here to oppose me. So would you want to come to class and listen to what I've said and and comment on it? And he said, sure father. So he came to my class and I, I, this class where I outlined the fact that there's all these different, you know, uh, writings around the time of Christ and the time of the apostles and none of them were collected. And then how they, you know, how they, you know, in Ephesus, they had Paul's letter to them, but they didn't have Paul's Paul to the Corinthians. So that would come to them and that would be added to theirs. Oh, and then, well, Matthew's gospel, we've got that, but who's this Mark's gospel, you know? So it, it gradually, it was an accretion as they, different churches would have different readings come in and I explained, you know, eventually people had to say, well, which which books can we actually officially read in church? Which ones can we consider scripture? And I went through the argument, and then well, it turned out the, the bishops in the Council of Sardis, the Council of Hippo, uh, eventually decided on what's now the canon. And I said, so deal, you're an evangelical, and I'm a Catholic priest, you know, teaching this to Catholic students. I mean, what's your response to that? He waited. Said, Father, I, there is no response. Wow. He became a Catholic. Not because of that class, but I mean, uh, uh, that's, that's the inevitable conclusion if you really go back to ask the question, as he says, how can you know what it teaches unless you know what it is, which is the Bible?
2: Right. right. And then to turn that around the, uh, the other way, um, he says on 171 that having the right scriptures is only half the battle because now you have to figure out what they say. So as much as there was this process selecting which books were going to be considered scripture, now there's all these disputes about what they mean and how do you settle those disputes if you don't have an authority. And so at the bottom of 172, he says, I desire to read the Bible with the church of the ages rather than with a historically young American evangelical subculture, reading the church fathers on the Eucharist, for example, it was apparent that they would not attend any of the churches of which I had been a part.
0: And we'll see that in other authors as well. uh, That, and this has become a more common recognition in Protestant circles that we all read the Bible from some tradition, you know, very few if anybody comes to the Bible and says, well, I'll interpret it in any way I want. You're in a church, a community, a family, whatever it is, and there's a tradition of how you interpret these things. Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes, well, since traditions differ, you know, which, which one can I trust?
2: And then at 174 comes the real closer that... <laughs> The ethical teachings, you know, trying to find a consistent voice on ethical teachings. We saw this in uh, uh, Ed Fazer and that the mention of contraception specifically being a light turning on for these people, that the Catholic Church is the only church that has a consistent sexual moral teaching. And and then but what I love here is his linking that with. These teachings being, quote, fundamental to the cruciform life. Uh, By the church's light, we are slowly but surely conformed to Christ through the Eucharist, prayer, repentance, and self-sacrifice in our vocations as mother and father of five small boys. I think that's just such a beautiful way for him to close this journey that at the end of the day, being a Christian is about being like Christ, that's what's do- that's what we're doing, and He comes to find in the Catholic Church the only authentic, consistent voice and guide and sacramental life for doing that.
1: Yeah, the other thing, I thanks for thanks for hard on that passage because I, you know, if, if I read it, I didn't strike me, but I think that's the first time. I've ever seen cruciform as an adjective to the word life. You know, I think about it as regards, you know, the shape of a church, right? That, that makes sense. But yeah. cruciform life, that's a wonderful phrase. Actually, I'm going to it steal is. that use it myself uh, in future. It's, good. it's
2: what all this is about.
0: Right. Of
2: course. <laughs> and it is beautiful, Joseph. You're right. That's why it grabbed me.
0: And, you know, Chesterton has a beautiful passion in Orthodoxy about the, the, the wild adventure of Orthodoxy. And, you know, I grew up in what appeared to be a more stable, serene atmosphere in the church, in our society. Uh, and I heard about all these controversies and the councils and debates and so on and, and heretics and this and that, but that was all in the past. Well, now that I see in the Catholic church today, the, opposition, the controversies, the dangers that are occurring, and the church is navigating your way through those, I appreciate much more the fact that, you know, this tradition has remained faithful. We, we've taught the same thing. Uh, these uh, The spirit of the age, while it's always tempted and caused a storm, it has never sunk the ship. Right. Uh, right. And I'm... But I, I, mean, I, I still think the ship is not going to sink. I believe in the Holy Spirit guiding the church. But you know, the time we're living in right now, we're, we're recording this in 2022. I mean, there are, there are large forces within the church that are, you know, attacking or att- eroding or attempting to, to diminish some of these fundamental teachings. It's, uh, it's dangerous.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. You about know, the glorious thing about about studying history is that you know you know that have I been mean, many times in the past where the spirit of the ages has uh, thrown the uh, the church off kilter, so uh, so so to speak, and even off course one might say, but it, it always comes back to, to the right course after after the storm or whatever the zeitgeist has caused in that particular century. You know that we 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 come back to true north, so to speak, because that's Guidance of the Holy Spirit, you know, ultimately,
2: right? But it is sobering to realize how much uh, can get lost along the way. Like when you think about the Byzantine Empire, that entire, almost that entire region of the world now is no longer Christian. Uh, you know, and that, and 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 long before the Muslim conquest, you know, there was so much division, heresies of all historianism and Arianism, and all the I mean, it was really kind of a mess, you know, and so we could take comfort that, yes, down through the ages, uh the bark of Peter has not been capsized, but there sure are times when a lot of stuff gets washed over <laughs>
1: yeah. never to come
2: back again or at least not in our time frame, you know, hopefully, in God's eternal care of it all somehow nothing will be lost somehow everything will be restored but golly sakes these conflicts can do just so much damage
1: as you say not just washed overboard but quite often jumping ship which is uh, even worse right right well
2: you know a lot of these when you read when you read the history of that part of the world like from the early centuries until the fall of constantinople i mean what a wreck just what a wreck Was going on now. Western Europe was also having all of its problems and wars and things like that. But somehow, Western Christendom, the kernel of the faith, somehow remained intact. Somehow, but what happened in the East? it, It and and that was ironically the seemingly stronger empire, right? The Byzantine Empire, by comparison to Western Europe in that same period, looked strong, looked impenetrable, looked. Like this huge monolith. No,
1: nope. but it also no. it also a bit a bit like the British Empire, and dare we say the American Empire, it also become completely corrupt. That's right, and decadent. You know, which in actual fact, you know, the vast majority of the, the people defending Constantinople when it fell were actually from from Western Europe because the uh, they they couldn't get their own people to actually <laughs> to fight for their own survival.
2: Yeah. And look, when the Muslims come to town and they somehow look better than the Byzantine overlords, you know the church has a problem.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it, okay? <laughs> it, 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 when I look at our culture in the United States, which I think is has a pretty healthy Catholic church compared to Europe, uh, there's so much vitality and there's, there's blogs and there's lay apostolates and there's good priests and a lot of good bishops and so on. Uh, uh, but I could see, you know, if we succumb to woke culture, it's possible that America and, and Europe will look like North Africa, you know, and uh, the Ottoman, former Ottoman Empire. But then I believe Africa will take up the torch. Well, and the Africans, torch will
2: always be passed somewhere. Yeah. Right. And, and then, so and, and anyway. Just,
0: and, and just as the Irish, you know, re-evangelized Europe, because Europe also, the early Christian Europe, was corrupted too. And
2: became repaganized. They were reconverting places that had already been converted hundreds of years before.
0: That's right. So So, it's in God's hands, but what, you know, our duty is to be faithful as mother Teresa said. That's right. And I, I do think that uh, if a core of Catholics simply continues the road of sanity, not even sanctity, but sanity which the Catholic church proposes They're going to have more children and there'll be a progeny because we're. I just saw a projection of China that, of course, these projections, you know, they they carry out trends which may not stay the same. But China will be down to 500 million people by the end of the century.
2: They, too, are facing a demographic winter.
0: Yeah. And the only reason why America
2: is staying, keeping its population stable is because we don't close our borders. <laughs> I mean, right. there's a there's a there's a method to this madness. Okay, it's about keeping up the demographic. Uh, anyway, we don't want to get yeah. into that.
1: But yeah, but right. I would say one thing as a subject was raised, it has been raised, is that it's more complicated than the fact that the population is going to reduce in China to to 500 uh, million. But the, in in the interim, it's going to be an aging culture with lots of old people. The right. China being China. We would end up getting compulsory euthanasia because these people are no longer productive, uh, and we'll just be terminated that's that's, to solve the problem. That's the, that's the
0: right. Problem. Yeah, that's why I try to stay productive. I say, look, I do these video things, I do these book clubs on the online. You know, don't 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 don't, <laughs> don't snuff me out yet. You know, I can still contribute. Oh, no, you certainly
2: can and do. <laughs>
0: um, well, we're almost at a half hour. Should we call it there?
2: We, we
0: can no, if I you want. Up Let's you. do that. Let's come back uh, next session and start with Chapter 7, uh, A Lutheran's Path to Catholicism. Thank you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Formed Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at com.